Now, I'm guessing there's a number of people here today that can identify with that experience. Maybe sex was not talked about at all. Maybe it was seen as something that was wrong or dirty or that other people do, but not here in our family. Uh, maybe it was something that, that was talked about, but it was isolated to, to one weekend with mom or one a baseball game and a talk with, with the son. I, I don't know. But what I think we can all identify with, regardless of, of if sex was an open conversation growing up and still is in, in your family and friends, or whether it's not, is that sex has changed, and it's no longer a taboo subject in our society, at least from a media standpoint. We hear about sex all the time, on a daily basis. All around us, sexuality is talked about. Sex is it's talked about, it's joked about, it's displayed, it's evaluated, it's critiqued. We're given tips on what to do and who to do it with. We're told what to avoid and, and what is wrong. And these are just the topics that are on the front of magazine co- covers when we go through the checkout stand. I mean, that, that's just what we see on a regular basis. Of course, we, we've got podcasts and, and we've got television, we've got film, we've got gossip mills. We're completely surrounded about it. And every time we receive or we hear an opinion about sex, there's a value that's attached to it. Sometimes it's a very obvious value. Sometimes it's more subtle. Now, one of the books that we've been following throughout this series is written by Timothy Keller. His book is called The Meaning of Marriage. And in his chapter on sexuality, he kind of breaks it down to three major opinions about sex that have highly influenced our society. The first is that sex is a natural appetite. Just as our physical bodies are hungry for food, when we're hungry, we eat. This opinion about sex is, well, when our bodies are need to be sexually gratified, if we desire that, then we should indulge. It's just a basic physical need that we have. Just like food that goes in our mouth and into our stomachs, so sexuality is something that our our body says that we need, and so we should act on that. A second view, which is quite different, is that sex is degrading. Sex is almost dirty or evil or bad. Now, this mentality kind of came back from the, the ancient world. And there's an idea, and it's actually addressed quite a bit in Scripture, of dualism. This idea that we have physical bodies. There's a physical earth. People have physical bodies, bone and flesh. But there's also a spiritual dimension to our world. And so this ancient thought thought that, that everything that was higher had to do with spiritual things. Godliness was more spiritual. Our emotion, our intellect, our rationale. These are all higher, more lovely things. But physical things... These these are just kind of degrading and necessary evils that we have to do in order to survive. And this understanding is, well, that's that's what sex is. It might happen, but it's not really something that that should be celebrated at all. Another opinion about sex is that sex is a form of self-expression. And this is certainly something that has become more and more dominant uh, throughout the past couple of decades. This is a way that individuals can find themselves It's a way for them to express themselves. And so they can use sex as they see fit, as they kind of go on this this identity quest, this sexual voyage of of expressing themselves to other people. Now, many people look at this list, and they think that the biblical idea of sex is number two. That sex is degrading. It's part of our physical world. It's something that really should not be talked about or, or really even participated in. But this is a major 
misunderstanding of the biblical story with respect to sex. Uh, Timothy Keller writes in his book, Biblical Christianity may be the most body-positive religion in the world. And the reason is that God is the creator of sex. The reason is that it's a fallacy to think that there are, are two natures, that the body and the earth are somehow inferior and that the spiritual life is somehow uh, superior. The two are blended together. And God created the earth. He called the earth good. God created humanity and, and flesh and blood, and then Jesus Christ took on flesh and blood himself. And as we'll see later on, the resurrection has a big part in this understanding of, of the body being just as spiritual as other components in our life. God not only creates sexuality, he actually commands husbands and wives to engage in regular sexual activity. And sex comes up time and time again throughout the Bible. There's a number of instances where there's sexual activity that is seen as not being appropriate, and, and there are judgments, and there's consequences to that. But the book Song of Psalms absolutely talks about sexuality through metaphors and a number of different stories. And I asked several people to read verses from that today, and surprisingly, they all declined. I'm not, I'm not sure why that is. They told me that they would blush even more than I would. But the idea here is that the biblical view of sexuality is extremely positive. But God has a specific design for sex. As a designer, he had intent for what sexuality would mean and what it was intended for. And because of this, we find a number of guidelines, a number of rules, perhaps you could call them, in the Bible saying, this is appropriate, this is not. This is how you, you would be obedient to God by using sexuality. These are things that go outside the parameters of what God has intended. But this message, the biblical beauty of sex, is largely overshadowed by the other messages that we receive on a, on a number of, of cases throughout the weeks. Now, when we have this such topic, and, and people know, well, you know, Keith's preaching on sex on May 20th, I got a number of emails of, of possible illustrations that I could be sh shown. Illustrations may be the wrong word to use in, in this. Uh, uh, maybe media examples is, is a better term. Uh, things of think, television shows, uh, movies, articles, a whole bunch of things. And they all do a great job of illustrating the fact that this is the idea. The, this person is communicating that sex is like this. Or this is the point or the mentality or the opinion of sex. And there's one clip that I want to show. This is, uh, probably illustrates point number one and two about sex being a natural appetite and also it, it being um, something that, that is a form of self-expression. This comes from the, the, uh, an episode of Seinfeld called The Deal, and it originally aired in 1991. So we're going to play this clip and then examine it. What do you think? I don't know. What do you think? Well, it's something to consider. Yeah. I mean, let's say, what if we did? What if? Is that like the end of the world or something? Certainly not. Why shouldn't we be able to do that once in a while if we want to? I know! I mean, really, what is the big deal? We go in there, we're in there for a while, and then we come back down here. It's not complicated. It's almost stupid if we didn't. It's moronic. Absurd. Of course, I guess maybe some little problems could arise. Well, there are always a few. I mean, if anything happened and 
we couldn't be friends the way we are now, that would really be bad. Devastating. Because this is very good. <laughs> and that would be good. That would be good too. <laughs> the idea is to combine the this and the that. But this cannot be disturbed. Yeah, we, 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 we just want to take this and add that. But of course we... Now, I think one of the reasons why Seinfeld continues to be so popular 20 years later is the topics that they talk about and the values that are raised up in this show are extremely relevant today. And it's funny. I mean, that's, a, that's probably a, another reason as well. But in, in this scene, what we have going on is we have Elaine and we have Jerry who are two friends, and they think to themselves, can we just add a physical part to our relationship? We're great friends. Or we have a, a great relationship, but wouldn't it be even better if we could take this great friendship that we have and we could just add the physicality of sex to our equation? And their assumption, and they, they begin to talk about this through different rules that they decide to incorporate into their relationship, their assumption is that they'll take care of all the messy details that have to, hap have to happen when you have sex with someone in order to make sure that someone doesn't get hurt. So they think to themselves, if we can eliminate some of the emotional and the relational ambiguities about having sex together, then we'll be okay. In other words, they think, if we can assure that neither one of us gets hurt through the process, we can just add the physical sexual component and everything will be okay. The question is, is this possible? And if so, why are Christians still so hung up about the fact that sex is only to be isolated in marriage? That people shouldn't have sex until they are married? But why does the seventh commandment say, thou shalt not commit adultery? If we can make sex just physical, attach some rules around it, make sure that no one gets hurt. Why does God put all these restrictions around sex? Why does it sound so dogmatic? If sex is so great, why don't we all just have sex and have sex with as many people as we want to? Well, the biblical passage that we've been reading through throughout the, the last several weeks is from Ephesians chapter 5. Now, the word sex does not appear in Ephesians chapter 5, but it's implied. There's one verse that Paul uses, uh, verse 31, and it actually goes back to Genesis 2, 24. It talks about the first union, the first marriage, the first sexual experience, Adam and Eve, who are joined together, they're united together. And we've read this before. We're going to look at it again. This is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, the context of this passage is about marriage. And Paul's point, as he's been making throughout this section, is this. Marriage is about two becoming one. The man and the woman, they come together. They are united. They have a covenant together. They are now one flesh. And Paul understands this concept about marriage. He uses this verse here to talk about Adam and Eve here in Ephesians. He also writes about it in some of his other letters. In fact, Jesus uses this exact same verse again. Uh, in the gospel stories, he's approached by, by some teachers of the law and they are asked, is it lawful to divorce? They're always trying to trap Jesus. Is it lawful to divorce? And Jesus' reply, he goes back to Genesis 2.24 and he says, the two shall become one flesh. He understands this, 
this teaching moment, this opportunity, and this instruction and intent that God has, that a man and a woman, they come together in marriage, and they are now united. They're bonded together. And so the idea of divorce is not really, it's not really part of the equation because the man and the woman are already bonded together. And he goes back to Genesis 2, 24. A man will be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, I mentioned here that in Ephesians uh, chapter 5, sex is just implied. But Paul uses this same verse from Genesis 2.24 in his letter to the church at Corinth in chapter 6. And in this section, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, there's no question what Paul's talking about. He's talking directly about sex. And once again, he uses this text. The interesting thing is, is he uses a word here in Ephesians 5, and he uses a, a similar word in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, but they're slightly different. And when we look at these words and when we identify this passage, the key to understanding God's design for sex is going to come out. So if you have your Bibles, flip back a little bit to your left to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we're going to begin in verse 12. Now Paul begins his teaching, he begins his argument by repeating a popular slogan that was known to the Corinthian people at that time. That just like you and I, we're, we're aware of many popular opinions and slogans in our world today. Uh, Paul had some, and he's, he's using this to provide teaching to the church at Corinth. He says this in verse 12. I have the right to do everything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Now, Paul begins by refuting uh, what the, the Corinthians would have heard. Maybe some of them believe this, maybe some of them have just heard this around him, but he refutes and, and he uh, disagrees with what is being said. This idea of, I can do anything. It's my right. And when we think about popular slogans today, this really is probably not all that far off from what things that we hear. It's very legal. It's my right. I can live how I want to live. You can't tell me. You can have your opinion. That's fine. You believe what you want to believe. I'll believe and act how I want to believe. And Paul says, yeah, but not everything's good for you. Not everything is beneficial or healthy for you. And he even goes further than that by saying, I don't want to be mastered. I don't want to be enslaved by anything. And then Paul uses the second slogan to introduce his teaching on sexuality. Now, for many Corinthians, the thinking of the day was that it made no difference how the body related to anything else in their life. We talked earlier about that idea of sexuality being something that was of the, the lower nature. It is just something having to do with our flesh and our body. So for them thinking, well, you live and then you die and your spirit moves on, the thinking was, well, what does it matter? If we're hungry, let's just eat as much food as we possibly want, and it doesn't matter what that does to our body. If we crave sexual activity, go ahead. Have fun with your physical lives. It, it's, it doesn't matter at all because your life spans 52 years or 81 years or whatever it is, and your body's gone, but your spirit moves on, and the physical really has no impact at all to the spiritual. And Paul basically is saying this is, this is completely incorrect. Now, for as, as sexually liberal, liberal and free as our society is, the, the Corinthians were probably even more so. Prostitution ran rampant. 
and, and it was one of those things that was actually legal, and from a societal perspective, it not necessarily that it was encouraged, but it wasn't seen as abnormal. This was something that, that happened quite regularly. And Paul uses this in his example of a man being uh, united and having a sexual relationship with a prostitute. But Paul isn't just speaking about the Corinthian culture and saying that this is terrible. He's speaking to the church, the church at Corinth. And he's letting them know that you can't just separate the physical from other parts of your life. And what he refers to is the resurrection. First off, we recognize that, that Jesus came and put on flesh and blood just like you and I have flesh and blood. There was nothing wrong at all about our flesh. But the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, just not as a spirit, but he rose in bodily form. He appeared to his followers and, and proved to them that this actually was his body. It also provides us with the understanding that when all of us die, we will one day be raised in bodily form. These are our spiritual bodies. The resurrection from the dead is true for followers of Christ as well. And there's a connection between our flesh and our souls. And this is what gets him ready to speak about sexuality more specifically. He's going to tell us exactly how our bodies are connected to our souls. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, and here comes that reference that we've been talking about back in Genesis 2.24, for it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Now, I think just this paragraph here that we have up there on the screen, I think it's fairly clear. Paul is, is making the link again that a sexual union, it, it creates a bond. And he's saying, why in the world would you do that with, with a prostitute? Now, this would have been extremely big news for, for a number of people at the church of Corinth because it was such a regular practice. What do you mean? I'm not united to, to the prostitute. I'm not a, a, united to this woman or to this man that I have a, a physical sexual relationship with. No, I'm married. My union is with my spouse. But Paul here is linking the physical interaction to the understanding of what happens in marriage. Now, we're going to look at the word unites in this passage and then in the, the book of Ephesians, and we're going to look at Greek, but we're just going to do it for a minute, and, uh, and it's going to be worth it. And as long as you can get through my mispronunciations, then hopefully we'll all benefit from this understanding of what Paul is talking about. And it has to do with the word unites. Ephesians 5.31 for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united, that's the key word, to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Uh, the Greek word here is proskaleo. It means united. Now, what's interesting about this word is it's a compound word. We have pros and we have a skaleo or kaleo. Now, pros means two or forward. It, it, it's, it's a small word, but it communicates action. So it's moving towards something, going forward towards something with the intention of having a goal or accomplishing something. The second word, koleo, is a verb that means to glue or to unite together. Literally, it means to bond or to glue together. So what's happening in this verse is, is Paul is saying, a man is leaving behind his father and mother, which would have been his relational priorities. He's leaving them behind with the intention, moving forward to his wife. Why? So they can be glued together. So they can be bonded 
together. Now, let's look at what happens in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. The Greek word here that's translated as unites is kolomenos. What's interesting here, it's a, a derivative of that same verb, kaleo, to glue or to unite. And it's that same idea, to bond together, to cleave, to join together. What's interesting is we don't have the compound word here. There's no intention. There's no forward movement here. The difference is, the difference between these two words in these two scenarios is that in, with one there's intention and with the other there's ignorance. But the result is the same in either case. And the Genesis story, which Paul repeats to the church at Ephesus, the man intends to go after his wife, to, to bond together into a holy union of marriage. He's moving towards this union with purpose and with recognition. But in 1 Corinthians, the intention is not stated there. Why? Because God's design for sex is a uniting act. And so even though the intention may not still be there, the result is still the same. Because sex is about two becoming one. If you're looking for an image for this point, it would be one of superglue. Sex is like superglue. It bonds the two involved together. And that's how God designed it. Why? Because he understood that, that a man and a, mo- a woman would leave their formal priorities, that they would have intention to come together, to be united together relationally, to be united together physically through a sexual relationship, and that through sexual activity, their bond would actually be strengthened. The glue would become even more tightly wound together. But when, when people choose to do this outside of marriage, the physical result has this happen as well, but it complicates all the other processes in their relationship, which can make it extremely painful. So if one sex partner doesn't intend for sex to be a uniting act, if that's not his goal, if that's not her intention or desire, it really doesn't matter because God's design for sex is still the same. And the the, the reality is that it happens just the same way. The result is two becoming one, even if this isn't what the couple wants. Now, Let's pretend for a moment that you don't care what 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, you don't care what Ephesians chapter 5 says. Let's play make-believe, whether you're a follower of Christ and you believe in the Bible or not, and let's just discount the Bible for a second and say, I don't know what God's design is for marriage, I don't really care about that, or this doesn't line up with how I'd like to live my life, so let's just pretend that we don't know what God's design for marriage is, and let's just think about what we have experienced together in life what you've experienced, what you've heard other people say, or what you've seen about the world around you. How many times have you heard someone say, sex changed things? Sex changed things. Now, I've seen this on countless television shows and movies. You might have heard a friend say it. Perhaps you even thought it yourself uh, of of a relationship that you've had. Sex changed things. Now, it's usually said in a negative way. Sometimes it it can be said positively, but it seems to be one of those things that we understand in life is true. After sex, he began to act differently. After we had sex, she responded to situations that we had in the past entirely differently. After sex, our relationship got way more complicated. I don't know what happened, but we had sex and then all of a sudden, 
it's just like it, it was totally different, and it was confusing. Sex changes relationships. And it might seem like it's a surprise to the unsuspecting couple, but you know what? It really shouldn't be because it's all part of God's design for sexuality. It's a uniting act. It brings the bond closer together. Whether or not the two individuals involved in that sexual activity intended for it to be or not. Science makes this point as well. There's a, a, a hormone, oxytocin, that is released when, uh, when couples engage in, in sexual activity. It's the feel-good hormone that our body releases. And the purpose of that hormone, why it's released, is it actually helps relationships bond together. It's, a, it's, it's the feel-good hormone. After sex, where couples just feel closer together. It's almost like the body's natural way of saying it's bonding time. You have now made two into one, and it's natural that you feel closer together. It's almost like it's God's way of providing couples with a biological bonding boost. And, and for those of you who are married and you engage in, in, in sexuality with each other, it's a good thing. And we, we find that Paul actually instructs couples not to spend too much time refraining from sexual activity because this is something that we're supposed to do as married couples is make sure that you glue yourselves together in the sense of confirming your, your uh, loyalty to one another and making sure that you are faithful to one another. And because of God's design, it really should not surprise us at all that people feel a deep connection to those that they have been sexually involved with. Because when something's designed well, it serves the purpose of the designer. And that's God's design for sex. Sex is to be a uniting act. It's like superglue. Which means that even when people don't intend for it to work this way, it's still going to work that way. It's the natural phase that follows sexual activity. Now, this is the point that Paul's making to the church at Corinth. This is the point that, that he is making. Sex, it's, it's a uniting activity. That's what God designed it to be. That's how you should live with that understanding of that's how God designed it and that's how I should respect it. That's how I should engage in the sexual act. And so when you unite yourself to anyone besides your spouse, you are now abusing and misusing God's design for sex. And whenever we do anything that God commands us not to do or something that he has not designed for us to do, there are consequences. And Paul talks about these in the following verses. But first he provides us with a command. Verse 18 Flee from sexual immorality. What's our response to temptation, to sexual interest? If it's not with your spouse, the response is to flee. All other sins, he says, a person commits outside of their body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your temple, your bodies, are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. The Corinthian chant was, I have the right to do anything. Everything is permissible. Now, our culture slogan may not be that severe, but I think it's pretty close. I think it sounds something like this. As long as no one gets hurt, anything is game. As long as no one gets hurt, everything's permissible. We can do whatever we want to. And once again, this, this idea is based on the fallacy that sex is only physical. It's a great example in that Seinfeld episode. As long as we set up enough rules 
to make sure that you feel okay about this and I feel okay about this and we could still have what we used to have. Let's just add sex to the equation. As long as no one gets hurt, everything is game. Paul disagrees. Because sex is a uniting act, whenever sex occurs outside of marriage, someone is guaranteed to get hurt. And here's the interesting thing. The someone is you. So many times uh, individuals think, and and it's certainly portrayed in society, that, that the person engaging in sexuality, they're concerned about the other person. I don't want to hurt her. We've we got to make sure that his feelings aren't hurt. But the ironic part is that it hurts both people. Paul says you hurt yourself. And his rationale is this. You actually sin against your own body. You sin against yourself. You betray yourself because you think you can glue yourself to someone else physically without also gluing yourself to them physically, emotionally, spiritually, lawfully. It goes against God's design. He goes further than this. He says, you hurt yourself because you hurt your relationship with God. Our bodies, for those of us who are are believers and followers of Jesus, our bodies are actually the temples of the Holy Spirit. There is no temple that we go to to worship at, a place where God's presence is is more than it would be somewhere else. Uh, The the scriptures say that, that believers have received the Holy Spirit and His dwelling place is actually inside our bodies. And so our response should be to honor our bodies to respect our bodies as the physical presence of where the Spirit of God resides, not to indulge in sexual activity with someone other than our spouse. Because sex is like superglue, and God's design for sex is to be a uniting act. Now, as human beings, each one of us are also sexual beings. That's part of our makeup. It's part of our lives. And we all have histories. Some of you can tell inspiring stories of how you've honored God with your bodies throughout your life. Of how at, at a young age, perhaps, you understood this, this concept. You learned about it in the scriptures. You had someone teach this to you. And you understood that sex is a uniting act. And that's the way that you have lived. But there's many of us who have not lived in that way. Many of us have stories of regret, of pain, of sorrow. And it's a challenge. It seems to be that whenever the topic of sexuality comes up, there's a burden, there's brokenness, and there's deep, deep hurt. But here's the thing. All of us, everyone here, regardless of what our past looks like, we have the chance to write a new story for our lives. I'm not saying that the past doesn't matter because it does. There's a a lot of brokenness that has happened in many of our lives. Some of it that is not our fault some of it that we have been participating in as well. And, and there's a big burden there. And thankfully, we serve a God who can rid us of that burden. But we have hope. All of us have hope. We have the chance to write a new story for ourselves. A story that embraces God's design for sex. A story that honors God by how we use our bodies. A story that resists the distorted views of sexuality in our world and provides a better context for how we truly celebrate God's gift of sexuality. We can write stories as a church community as well. We can strengthen relationships by by stewarding the gift of sexuality well in our marriages and understanding what that looks like so that we honor God with our bodies. We can use this through relational strength and unity instead of brokenness and shame. Regardless of your past, your future can be one that follows God's design for, for sex 
which is that sex is a uniting act. So what story do you want to write? What story do you want to live? What story do you want to tell your kids? Because kids do ask questions. What stories do you want to share with the youth at our church when you're giving a teaching opportunity? And when you've decided on the story that you want written about your life with respect to sexuality, what will you do now to make sure that this story will actually be lived out? Lord God, we thank you for your word. We recognize, Lord, that your word is truth. And many times it flies in the face of what we have already done or what we would like to do with our own lives. But Lord, obedience is not about doing something when we want to do it and doing something that we see fit for ourselves. Obedience is understanding that you are God and you know what's best for us and following through with that. And so Lord, I pray for our church. I pray that we will be an obedient people with respect to your design for sexuality. I pray that we would see that sex is a uniting act. I, I pray, Lord, that we would treasure that in marriage and that uh, sexuality in our, in our marriages, it would bond the husband and the wife closer together. They would help them renew their, their marital faithfulness and their vows to each other. God, I pray for those who have pasts that, that are indicative of, of brokenness and shame. Lord, I pray that you would bring them to a point of healing. I pray, Lord, that, that your spirit would, would equip them and comfort them, Lord, and they would come to a place of feeling freed from this brokenness and that you would bring about transformation in their lives. God, we want to serve you and we want to follow your instructions. So give us the courage to do that today. Give us the vision for a life well-lived that honors you with our bodies and then help us to know what steps we can take to do that. And Lord, in everything, may we worship you in mind, body, soul, and strength. Amen.